I think really what drove me to start the company was this notion that SpaceX and Blue Origin were founded by billionaires and transformed the way aerospace looked. That transformation wasn't going to stop. There was going to be a next wave here. So I, to me, it was really exciting to bring a better technology to the next wave of companies. We've had engineers interview with us that had already given us a no. They, they didn't want to come work at Ursa Major. They didn't want to move across the country. They came to visit and said yes after the visit because of the names on the name tags they saw around the facility. They could come learn from these people. They could work with people that they've admired. This is the Proco 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor, hosting Proco 360 because I love Colorado and I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs. Today's episode features Joe Lorienti, CEO of Ursa Major, a rocket engine company based in Berthoud, Colorado. And when I say rocket engines, I mean the kind that take huge rockets into space to deliver payloads into orbit. Joe's background before Ursa Major included being a propulsion engineer at SpaceX and then working at Blue Origin. I'm a little nervous, actually. Joe, I've never interviewed a rocket scientist before, uh, but how hard can it be? It's not like rocket like brain surgery, right? Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. When I interview a brain surgeon, I'm going to say, it's not like rocket science. So I want to learn about rockets and making rockets. So we're going to talk about all that. We'll also talk about what it takes to attract the world's best talent away from the big names we mentioned earlier to work for a smaller company based in Northern Colorado. So Joe, all of that is on the table. Thanks for being on Proco 360. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we talked a bit about, I gave a quick background about Ursa Major. You can probably do much better. Oh, well, you, you got it pretty close. So we are now an eight-year-old company, um, spent our entire history here in Colorado. And we think of ourselves as two things. You know, you said rocket science with very little science involved. This is something Elon Musk of SpaceX really likes to touch on. It's more rocket engineering. So we see ourselves very much as engineers. We like to put together very complex systems of rocket engines and propulsion systems. And a big piece of that is manufacturing. So we think of ourselves as 50-50 tech and industry and have you been up to our site yet? Yes. Okay, I've so been there, uh, but I did not get to see uh, the test uh, where you, you didn't shoot. Get to see fire. You didn't get to shoot. I didn't see the fire blasting into the, the hillside over there. Oh, that's too bad. Next time you're up there, you'll have to well, see it. Yes. Um, so we we design, develop, build, and sell uh, rocket engines for everything from space launch, like you said. It's funny you mentioned big rockets. Uh, when you're standing on the ground and the engine's firing, it feels pretty enormous. But actually, most of what we sell into is considered small rocketry. So mini fridge to refrigerator size satellites or yeah. washing machine size satellites. So um, I think you recently had Dor Dirk on from York. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, very much the the class of satellite that our customers launch into orbit. Ah, all right. So just explain too, from a, a size standpoint, the size of the engines, you've got different models, but roughly mm. how big are the engines themselves? Our first product, Hadley, is in production today. And if somebody looks at photos of our factory or gets lucky enough to get a tour like you, you've gotten to have in the past, our Hadley engine is 5,000 pounds of thrust, but uh, it only weighs about 70 pounds. So sitting on a table, you know, it's two feet tall. It can be lifted by a single person. Like the size of a suitcase. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly A duffel, right. big duffel. Yeah. I've actually flown with them on airplanes before. Come on. Oh, <laughs> Well, I guess if they have engine problem, right? <laughs> they come back into so, so I have hey, to check them. I can't carry them on. Oh, okay. But, yeah. Hey, well, your mission is uh, defined as democratizing aerospace by increasing access to world-class propulsion. So what does democratizing mean? It's really this transformational wave that we're seeing in aerospace and defense. The last, you know, really going all the way back to post-World War II, 
the history of the U.S.'s aerospace has been tied to national security and defense. And a lot of what we've seen over the last 20 years is commercialization. We've seen the companies I've worked for in the past, SpaceX and Blue Origin, are self-funded by already extremely wealthy founders, yeah. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And they founded these companies to bring space – to make space more accessible so that it's not just – a government effort. It's not just a national security effort. There's also, in the case of SpaceX's Starlink, uh, communication satellites. Yeah, yeah. Well, you also think like, you know, bringing it to the people, I mean, you think about space tourism, but that's, yeah. you know, I mean, that's a tiny, tiny sliver of any of this, right? Sure. So it's either, it's either defense, or, you know, government defense related or communications related is almost all of it, isn't it? A lot of it's communication, national security. It, it's really you can you can summarize it down to one thing, and it's data, and that's mm. what gets really exciting. And after the next five years, ten years, exploration and human presence in space is going to become a lot bigger. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of focus on building manufacturing presence in space. Which yeah, gets that's really super exciting. cool. Yeah, um, on the moon or in space. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Today it's all data, though. It's weather satellites. It's communications. Mm. It's imaging or defense or defense. Of, yeah, yeah. Uh, we support, you use the word democracy or democratizing. I'm going to use that again. We support democracy internationally. I mean, the, our country likes to see other countries be democracies. We don't really want to democratize the ability for our enemies to be in space though, right? I mean- No, I mean, that, that's there's a, a really quick way to, to show kind of what we intend to do and what we are allowed to do that Ursa Major cannot sell into- some nations that you'd absolutely anticipate, like Iran, yeah. North Korea, China. So um, this is very much a U.S. national security and a Western national security effort. And I say Western, but uh, we have friendly nations like Japan and South Korea that uh, absolutely the U.S. is helping support in both space and missile defense. Yeah, it'll be interesting how our, I mean, our friends and enemies often flip-flop. So whoever you're selling to today, you may not be able to sell to yeah. tomorrow and vice versa, but yeah. Yeah, luckily we're uh, just about entirely U.S. focused right now. Oh, yeah. Okay. So talk about your background. You were a propulsion engineer at SpaceX and then you were at Blue Origin. How do you go from being uh, an engineer employee, essentially, to being CEO of a rocket engine company? A lot of long nights. Um, really, it was it was being an angsty 20-something engineer that made Earth's major happen because I wanted to build really capable engines. I wanted to push the state of the art with technology. And at a company like SpaceX or Blue Origin, the engines are just one piece of a really big machine that is yeah, the yeah. rocket. So you, you kind of have an artificial ceiling of what you're allowed to go do on the engines. But I started Ursa Major to try to break through that and create better technology for the masses. What's so that mean, Ursa Major? Ursa Major is uh, the Great Bear. It's the Big Dipper constellation. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the Hensher logo. Yes, exactly. Oh, got it. I've never been much into the whole, like, you know, you look up a bunch of stars and somebody thousands of years ago drew a line around it to make a shape or something. So I had to pick a good name and, uh, that's cool. What, yeah. What better name than something based on the stars? That's really cool. Uh, but still, I mean, okay, you decided, I mean, there had to be something else go through your mind. Then I'd like to do something more than I'm doing now. I mean, to find, to create a company that makes engines, right. That's a whole different thing. It, it was really the excitement around the technology of let's go build better engines. And we did that using 3d printing. There's a lot of 3d printing involved in our engines. Almost all the metallic primary structures are 3D printed. So huh. that was kind of a leap. We wanted to take a risk with new technology on the manufacturing side and and bring it into the engine. But I think really what drove me to start the company was this notion that 
SpaceX and Blue Origin were founded by billionaires and transformed the way aerospace looked, that transformation wasn't going to stop. There was going to be a next wave here. So I, to me, it was really exciting to bring a better technology to the next wave of companies after SpaceX and Blue Origin. Huh. That's interesting. So it went from these massive government programs at NASA and related kinds of things. It, then it funneled down to faster, more nimble, but still huge. And then it, it's continuing, right? Down to more That's specialized. Exactly right. That's interesting. So did you build, had you already designed and engineered, maybe even built a prototype before you left your last, you know, your last No, I, I had great experience. The number of engine development programs in the U.S. was you know, one a decade until mm -hmm. the early aughts. And then SpaceX and Blue Origin were really transformational in that they had really the first privately funded engine development yeah. campaigns in the U.S. It's kind of like, we got so much money, you can't stop us? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it was a really lucky set of timing that I was starting my career when they were just standing up engine development programs. So I got to gain experience on those programs and then go start a company and use that experience. Got it. Now, so you mentioned York Space Systems, who's buying your rockets, or they're not actually buying your rockets. Who's buying your rockets? So our engines go into the hands engines, of launch operators. You can think of it, uh, you know, United Launch Alliance. They're, they, not a, they're not a partner of ours, yeah. but they're out here in Colorado. They are a service provider. They, mm -hmm. they launch satellites from Cape Canaveral, Florida into whatever orbit the satellites right. need to go to. So our customers are those service providers. They they operate the rockets to deploy satellites. Like How many are there? There's United Launch Alliance. I mean, SpaceX is a service provider, aren't yes, they? But they exactly. have their own engines. Yes. So, so SpaceX and ULA are the two largest rocket yeah. launchers today. There are probably a dozen well-funded startups underneath them, uh, including Blue Origin. Is and that who's buying your engines? Those companies are, exactly. Those so not, are. not Blue Origin, SpaceX, or ULA, but some of the other startups How underneath there. interesting. So you're really part of an ecosystem of space launch startups? That's right. And there are, if you look at the big primes, the Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, yeah. Northrop Grumman's, they're used to buying propulsion systems. So this actually fits them very well. But they're not in the launch business. They need propulsion across the board, whether yeah. it's aircraft or... Uh, missile simulators mm. or missile defense or space launch. They they have applications across so the So could board. you guys be selling into propulsion outs, you know, that's land-based or aircraft other than space? Absolutely. And, all right. About 40% about of our, our business right now is hypersonics. Meaning aircraft. Aircraft. Exactly. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. All right. I, I want to find out, this is where I'm going to ask you to get geeky and you'll probably love it, but I need you to keep it at my level. I don't think we have is, enough time in the day. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I want to ask you about the aspects of an effective rocket engine. Okay. And I went, I took these straight off of your website and there are six of them. Staged combustion, reusability, thrust vector control, active throttle range, single mission restarts and custom burn duration. Awesome. So in, you know, 30 to 60 seconds. Yeah. I want to go through each one. What is okay. staged combustion and why do we care? Yeah, everything you just listed there is kind of a feature of our architecture of our engines. So staged combustion is the cycle of engine, meaning carbureted versus electronic fuel injection. So staged combustion is the kind of pinnacle of performance for a rocket engine. And we were America's first oxidizer-rich staged combustion engine, which is a subset of that cycle. So yeah. you were right. We're going to geek out a yeah. little bit. But really what it means is our performance floor is above the performance ceiling of other lower performing architectures. So, Which means what to a customer? The 
the relationship between engine performance and how much satellite you can get to orbit is not linear. So uh, if an engine is 5% higher performing, you might add 20% more satellite that you can get to orbit or more. So our performance is really critical to either the cost basis to get satellites to space yeah. or how much satellite you can get to space. Certainly the value equation changes. Exactly. If you've got exactly. a more efficient engine or a That's more right. powerful engine. I, I like to joke that the engine is kind of like the processor of the rocket and that all of the performance of the rocket comes down to how capable of an engine do you have. Cool. Now, before we get to reusability, I want to uh, remind listeners, this is Proco 360, named Best Colorado Business Podcast 2021 and 2022. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. My guest today is Joe Lorienti, CEO of Ursa Major. Thanks to our sponsors, Kinsley Meetings. Kinsley Meetings is our longest running sponsor. Really appreciate them. Their business is growing based on a great reputation for conducting meetings that have lots of moving parts. Give them a call. Also, Via Technologies, thanks for hosting Proco 360 and all the help your team gives me around managing the website. Finally, Colorado Biz Magazine, our partnership is one of building our audiences together. Go to Proco360.com and check out these sponsors. All right, back to Joe. Uh, I'm going to move into the second piece of okay. your features of your, your rocket reusability. I think we've learned some of that uh, through, wasn't it, isn't it SpaceX that has reusable components? And That's yeah. right. Yeah. SpaceX is now reusing their current rockets. And the simple way to think about that is outside of SpaceX today, every rocket launched gets thrown in the ocean, gets thrown away. So Elon at SpaceX used to make a joke that it's like getting on a 737 to fly across the country and then they throw and we, away the plane. And that's really the world we've been playing yeah, in, yeah. in in space launch. So uh, we, we really take reusability to heart and we design it into all of our engines. And actually to the first point on stage combustion, reusability is almost uh, an artifact of stage combustion. So we, we selected an engine architecture that helps reusability. Yeah, we're not going to go there. That's <laughs> way fine. too That's deep. Fine. Way too deep. But how do you get them back? I mean, if you've launched, if you've launched a an air, a spacecraft, and I get it, if it's reusable and it's on a it's for hypersonics, I get right. it. Right. Right. But. Do you get them back if they've gone to space? So that's where the fun part of this comes. If our engine is reusable, it really then falls on our partners to design a vehicle oh, that well, can that's be maybe not the right phrase. Why is that? Falls on our partners. Oh. Might not. I mean, some falls them, to Earth. Yeah, that, yeah okay. so Some of them may or may not want reusability, <laughs> but uh, you're exactly right. In the world of hypersonics, there is a really easy approach, and that's it looks like an airplane. It comes yeah. and lands on a landing strip. In rockets, you've got to bring it back and land it vertically like SpaceX does. Yeah. Thrust vector control. That simply means that uh, the engine can steer itself. And so in any rocket, you needed the ability to steer old, think think smaller sounding rockets. They had the fins that would move. Yeah. Now yeah. you have the engines that move. We mm -hmm. build that into our engines so that our customers don't have to worry about it. So uh, obviously there's massively complex computer controls that right. auto adjust based on, you know, whatever trajectory you're trying to go, right? That's yeah, the simple way to think about that feature on our engine is every one of our engines has a computer on it. And that way our customers don't have to think about how do we, how do we steer this engine around or change its power level? That all falls on our computer. It does mm. all the calculations for them. So it's a really simple interface. So does that it must improve the reliability, obviously, of where of delivering right. the payroll payload. Reliability, usability, just kind of ease of integration and ease mm. of testing. All right. I'm going to ask you more about that in a minute. Active throttle range. That means our engine can change its power setting. And that's not By typical, itself? Uh, using that computer, that onboard computer. So 
I, I sort of joke that our customers send an electrical signal to our computer that tells it it's kind of an on and off, think it ignition key. And then they've got the gas pedal and they've got the steering wheel. And so the uh, th active throttle range is the gas pedal. The thrust vector control is the steering wheel. And these two features are unique to you? It's less that they are unique. Every rocket needs those in yeah. some form. It's more that it's unique that they are embedded on our engine. So we are selling a complete package as opposed to imposing some of those requirements on our customers. That's I've always wondered, you know, whether it's home construction or whatever, you want like one person to blame. Right. So it's, so we can be that. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I mean, as far as delivery, accurate delivery, you own more of that control for That's your right. customers. Interesting. All right. Single mission restarts. What's that mean? That means that our engine can actually turn itself off and back on multiple times. So that's the sort of ignition key. Yeah. That is atypical of a lot of engines. So atypical? Atypical. Why is that important? It's a difficult challenge, especially if you're in a vacuum. The time you would want to restart the engine is when you're already in orbit. So maybe maybe you've launched from Florida, your second stage of the rocket has separated. You've got a satellite ready to put into orbit, but it's a big elliptical orbit and you need it to be a circular orbit. You have to turn the engine off and relight it an hour later. Huh. And that's a technical challenge. And actually a lot of these smaller startup companies that are building their own engines don't have that capability. I would think yet. that'd be a reliability challenge too. Like it's turned Absolutely. off and then you're like, you turn the switch, you're like, God, I hope it turns off. That's when a lot of rockets fail. Ah, cool. Okay. Last one, custom burn duration. I kind of think I know what it is, but why is that important? It's really important just to show that we... One engine can do a wide swath of missions. We don't design it for just a three-minute launch or a five-minute launch. It can uh, do a 30-second quick burn or it can do a five-minute long burn. And, and that means somebody can buy it with more confidence. If their mission parameters change slightly, they can use your engine That's anyway. exactly right. And so you put all those things together. And what it really means is we have one engine that can do a ton of missions. Wow. Uh, and this may be leading right into my next question, which is your your website says your engines are masterfully tuned to be an optimal balance of performance, reliability, and cost. So what would someone like me, like what don't I appreciate about this notion of optimal balance? There's sort of a running joke in the aerospace industry. I'm sure Dirk has heard it. A lot of Coloradans have heard it because there's a lot of aerospace out here that you have fast, cheap, and reliable, yep. and you can pick two of the three. So we we really have to, as a product company, as, as a market-facing company, we kind of have to balance all three of those. There, we have customers that are willing to take a ton of risk, but they mm -hmm. can't afford uh, the yeah. Ferrari of rocket engines. And then we have customers who can afford zero risk, and a launch failure yeah. would kill the company. That's interesting, because it, it really, I was thinking about this before we got together, because um, you mentioned Dirk. He's been on the podcast. So has Tori Bruno of yeah. United Launch Alliance. And we, I talked with Tori a lot about this notion of cost versus reliability. And um, long question, but United Launch Alliance says nothing tops mission success, and their model is built on absolute reliability and they're more expensive sometimes than some of their competitors and their customers are okay paying for that, right? Because they've got these massively expensive payloads that they're launching. That's they right. want as high reliability as they can. Your Ursa Major Hadley engine runs less than a million dollars compared to uh, what I read, more of an average of $140 million uh, for engines maybe that power NASA space launch systems right now. Yeah. It's I, a different sense of scale. So it's yeah. kind of apples to oranges, but the, we really like to pride ourselves at four for a level of performance, reliability, power. We want to be 10% the cost of what a legacy aerospace. Yeah, but I think the natural question is, okay, if it's cheaper, like how much reliability am I giving up? Is it a, you know, a thousandth of a percent? Is it like, how do you measure 
how to save money when you're launching a so rocket. There's actually a way to calculate that. And it's just, it's a risk calculation. It's the yep. cost of risk. So when SpaceX was launching their 20th mission or so, they had a failure on the launch pad. And I think it was their second failure. I, I, they had some early failures on the Falcon 1. But if you look at the risk-adjusted cost of a SpaceX flight, the sticker price was half of a ULA flight. But the risk-adjusted cost was greater because they had failed two times out of 20 at that uh, point. Yeah. If you look at SpaceX today, they have flown 150 times. So their cost is much, much, much less expensive. The risk than factor. The yeah. I mean, the risk adjusted uh, cost back is when I was expensive. in, in uh, college, we talked about expected value. That's right. You're right. Yeah. It's this, that's the notion is like right. the cost times the expected probability or the probability that you're going to succeed. And that's right. your multiple. And so we, yeah. we, Actually, we we tend to agree more with Tory and ULA that reliability is paramount in this industry. We we have partners that may or may not agree with that, but we think reliability is really the key metric we want to drive to. That said, if you can drive an extremely low cost, a transformationally low cost, you can take more risk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no one wants to be the outlier who who has a mission fail. That's right. Uh, That's exactly. And right. at the same time, if you don't. If you don't strive to lower cost, right? I mean, ultimately, why would someone go to somebody new? Right. Uh, so, yeah, or or create better value, whether it's cost yeah. or value, whatever. Yeah. All right. What uh, before I shift before I shift to talking about the operations at at Ursa Major and so forth? Uh, what else should should we know about a rocket product, a rocket company that like I haven't asked you? I, I think you've touched on a lot of good ones. We'll dive into the operations a bit, but I, I think. A lot of the things that we are diving into here are why Ursa Major is an engine-focused company versus a launch service provider. And that's really because the technical challenge is so great that we can put that in front of the world's most talented engineers and excite them about our mission. Mm. And uh, if you are a company that has an engine as kind of a byproduct, if you're building the full rocket and the engine is just one piece there uh, – that technical lift kind of has that artificial ceiling I mentioned. Yeah. Earlier. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. All right. I do want to talk because you're now you're kind of moving us into this area of workplace and culture and, yeah. and I want to go there. You're listening to Proco 360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. This episode is with Joe Lorienti, CEO of Ursa Major. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, link to sponsors, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. So uh, let's talk about workplace and culture because I think – well, I know you've been named Best Place to Work uh, 2023 by Built In. And you're, on your website, it says, we're not just helping humans get to space. We're celebrating humanity in the process. Uh, sounds nice, but talk about that. Uh, that first piece really appeals to me. Or I guess the, the the blurb from our website really appeals to me as an engineer. Uh, I think we, when I look back to the team at Ursa Major being five employees in an attic trying to start a company, it was really easy for the five of us to know what made each other tick, how each other worked. Now, now we're 270 employees. It's it's very different. You've got to embrace the talent that everyone can bring as individuals and understand how how to get those individuals to work together best to achieve a really hard mission. So the people part of this, I think, is really important. But you know, you said it's really important as an engineer, and most people, I think, when they think of engineers, have an, a stereotype that people are not really part of the equation. That's why it's so important. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of engineers at our company. So we have to make sure that they are uh, well communicated with. They are uh, 
driven, they are excited, they are communicating with one another and understanding of one another very well. Yeah. I mean, how did you become an engineer that put people at the forefront of your mind? Probably out of necessity to make her some major work. Um, I, I think I always enjoyed the engineering side. That was always easy for me. Um, I kind of grew up very mechanically inclined, loved working on cars, that type of thing. Um, the people side really came out of Ursa Major. I, it was just clear that to build a functioning product and a functioning customer relationship, we had to build a functioning organization. And yeah, that, yeah. that takes people. It's funny. I, I've got an older son who's a mechanical engineer. And when he was at CU as a freshman, I wanted to kind of motivate him to actually do his work. So I took him and a few of his engineering friends to see a number of different operations oh, and said, great. okay, which one do you think you'd like to work at? The one that was super cool that had like wood walls and cappuccino machines, uh, none of them wanted to work for huh. because the work was boring. The one that were, they all gravitated to the one that had interesting work. That that's was like, yeah. And so that's kind of what you're saying. It's like, mm -hmm. I've got to create an environment where people find the work exciting. Yeah. And I think they find the people exciting. We've we've had engineers interview with us that had already given us a no. They, they didn't want to come work at Ursa Major. They didn't want to move across the country. There's some reason. Mm -hmm. And they came to visit and said yes after the visit because of the names on the name tags they saw around the facility. What do you mean the names on the name tags? It's a small enough industry. They knew these names. It was sort of they could come learn from these people. They could work with people that they've admired. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was really exciting. That is cool. Uh, and it's a, it's a great statement. And it also kind of suggests that as a startup, well, you're beyond startup, but as a, you know, attracting brands of people, attracting people that will attract the, your engineers. I mean, right. that's, did you think about that strategy when you were building it? No, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was very much, um, yeah. I knew a handful of folks that I had wanted to work yeah. with and it sort of proliferated from there. Really, I think where things took off was around a hundred employees. We built a really functional, um, we call it people operations instead of HR, but we built yeah. a people operations team that really thought more about recruiting and team building. Yeah. But I, I'm I'm intrigued, and I'm going to continue to explore that maybe with future guests. The idea of recruiting some sort of magnetic types of talent, yeah, and absolutely. Uh, yeah, and then using and then that draws the talent Definitely. that you want. That's interesting. Your website says the team shares a common goal and obsesses about achieving it together. This requires leaving egos at the door and committing to do whatever is required within reason to achieve mission success. You know, you hear a bunch of that from about everybody. Oh, yeah, we leave our egos at the door. I mean, usually it's, I don't know, I'm skeptical. But I'm going to ask you to share a specific example of something that illustrates that. We're going to talk about employees we fired. Is that where you're going? Uh, no. <laughs> but I, maybe. Is I, that part of leaving egos yeah, at the door? Yeah, I think, I think we take it really seriously. Um, I, the example that comes to mind is not a firing by any means. It's more part of our standard interview process is if you are coming in as – super talented engineer with 25 years experience, or maybe you're coming in as a VP of sales, we put you through a series of interviews. Uh, and we also send you out to lunch with a random group of employees. And that can include um, our shipping receiving clerk. It can include a technician who turns wrenches on an engine. If one of them says no, after they come back from lunch, we don't hire you. We have an ultimate veto policy among our, our staff. And that's really driven by this culture we've tried to create of we have to be able to work together on a team. Wow. Okay. That's a great example. Meaningful work. I want to define that a little bit. 
it says, do something you'll be able to tell your grandchildren, and I helped us get there. I mean, that sounds like it's a reinforcement to a lot of the things you've talked about already about giving engineers, giving people on the team a sense of like excitement about the work. Yeah, I think when we we actually you you quoted an earlier statement from our website on humanity. I think there are a lot of space companies that say we're here to help the planet, we're here to help humanity, and I I really like that mission, but. The reason I started Ursa Major was quite a bit of angst around the fact that the best aerospace technologies that I admired growing up were built in the 1960s. <laughs> I wanted to go build better tech. So um, when I think about that statement, um, something that you can talk to your grandkids about, to me, it's all about the tech. But I think that we have people that are excited about building an organization, building a company. We have people that are excited about helping a completely new startup launch their rocket. So. It, that that message, I think, is a different message for just about everyone on the team. Yeah, but for everybody, when you're recruiting, do you just if there's somebody you really want, do you fire a rocket? We fire rockets all day, every day. So it's <laughs> <laughs> you just happen to miss us. I guess, Darn, I'm going to come yeah. back and watch that. Yeah. Um, culture. We we don't have a whole lot of time left, and you mentioned three things in your culture: cohesion, conviction, humility. And the one thing I really wanted to talk about around humility is that it says we take the time to teach. So talk about your particular expectations around teaching and how you know you're really doing that. Humilities, those are our three values. They've been our three values at our company since we were 50 employees, which tells you how well they've stuck and how seriously we take them. Um, Humility is probably the most misunderstood one. Humility, a a lot of times we'll have to correct employees. It it doesn't mean um, staying quiet if you disagree with something. Uh, It doesn't mean... uh, it doesn't mean ignoring the right technical solution because somebody brought up something else. It really means being able to be wrong and being able to, um, again, leave your ego at the door and and take risks. You and see people, work well do, with I mean, it's so risky because when you say take risk, the real risk is telling somebody that you disagree with them and that, you know, bringing up something, right? I mean, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, or or um, if somebody speaks up and there's a consensus in a room about a technical decision, if you don't agree, you need to be able to say you disagree. Yeah. Yeah. You're based in Colorado, based in Berthoud, northern, north of us here. Uh, what's Colorado meant to you? Why Berthoud? So I grew up out here. That's that's why the company is out here. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to be close to the mountains. I wanted to be back in the front range. Uh, the reason behind Berthoud is really just luck. We we got a cold call from a realtor when we were, again, five employees in an attic, and they had a missile test site that they were trying to offload. So <laughs> Just by pure, random? Pure yeah. startup luck. So we, wow. we've had this property. We've been able to build production and engineering and engine testing. Uh, all, all in the same facility. All in the yeah. same property. So does, does Colorado help you attract and retain people? Absolutely. Yeah. That was a big surprise. I started the company here. One, because I wanted to to build a company here. Two, really, because there was existing aerospace. So we knew we had supply chain. We knew we had feeder schools. Um, what I didn't expect was that we'd be able to grab talent out of the coasts very easily. Mm. A lot of folks have enjoyed moving here to Colorado. That's cool. Good to hear. Uh, let's talk about going forward a little bit. I'm intrigued by the notion of how you could crack what might be called a system, the idea that you know, an established system, you know, it's kind of a small insular family of rocket launchers and all that. And you're trying to crack that and you're trying to sell the people, some of whom have been like doing the same thing for their entire careers and you become the new unsafe choice, right? How do you do that? The nice piece of our model is we very quickly become the safe choice because we have so many possibilities for launch. We can collect a lot more data. We have a lot more shots on goal. So the the kind of compounding uh, risk equation that we talked about earlier 
changes very quickly versus if we were launching our own rockets. But that must have been a, I mean, I can, I was about to do a, a, a hand gesture. It's kind of like a rocket launch yeah. almost, but the, but ultimately once you get a little momentum, I mean, does it start building on itself pretty quickly? Absolutely. We have three customers that are hoping to fly this year. Um, one of which is coming up here very soon. So no engine, as far as I can tell in history, has flown on three different rockets in the same year. And this will be our maiden year. So wow. that snowball's coming pretty fast. That's super cool. And it sounds like, you know, Ursa Major is a relatively small company in an industry that's known for being big. Yeah. Um, it seems like though you're already having a pretty big impact shaping the future of the industry, would you say? I think so. Um, I think we, we've definitely impacted kind of the talent base. I think we've excited a lot of the, mm. the engineers and future engineers. A, a lot of what we are trying to change is, to your point, it's big and slow. So it's going to take some while. We're, we're steering a, a massive ship. It's mm. tacking very slowly. But um, luckily, the areas we're playing in, space launch and hypersonics and missile defense, those are, those are pretty important. So I don't know if you've even thought about this because you're too busy. But at some point, as you continue to succeed and you'll keep growing – you're going to have trouble that the other guys have staying nimble, creative. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, hopefully that problem faces us sooner rather than later, just because it, it, really? means, it means we've, we've embedded ourselves very well, but yeah, but how do you, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's what you hope for, but what are you going to do to manage past it? Because you don't want to be big and slow, do you? No, we don't want to be big <laughs> and slow, but we we certainly want to want to be the incumbent. We want to face the new challengers. So uh, I think I think really our solution to that would be harking back to our heritage. It's not just here at Ursa, but a lot of us spent time at SpaceX or Blue Origin in the early days. So we we know what it means to be uh, really. It's in our DNA to be fast. Yeah, well, that's a. I think that's a a good point because. I don't, I don't think they're seen as big and slow, even though they're bigger maybe than exactly. some major yet. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's part of, yeah, you're right. The DNA is that this is just, it's just part of the way you do things now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what's the next cool thing? We've got a flight coming up. That'll be pretty cool. We're, we're firing our Ripley engine now, which is super exciting. Is that it's named after the movie? After Alien. Alien yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. So that's, that's our big engine. That's, that's making a lot of fire and noise. So that's, that's Where's super that? fun. Uh, up in Berthoud. Really? Yeah. Uh, how do I get an invitation to that? Uh, we'll we'll make sure to send one your way. All right. That'll be super cool. I'll take photos and share it with listeners. How that about sounds that? great. Let's wrap up. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, today on Proco 360. You've been listening to my conversation with Joe Lorienti, CEO of Ursa Major. I'm glad you could join. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. It's been great. Listeners, glad you could be here too on Proco 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast. If you haven't yet, it's a huge help if you submit a review. Want to thank Caitlin for coming and joining, watching in the other room from Ursa Major. Also, thanks to show sponsors via Technologies, Kinsley Meetings, and Colorado Biz Magazine. That's the show. Live, work, love Colorado.